So we're in a, a sermon series called The Advent of the Son of Man, and uh, basically what we're doing is we're just looking at a series of texts wherein Jesus tells us why He came, why He came. Advent is simply a word that means coming, and it behooves us to ask, why did Jesus come? What did He come to accomplish? So we're looking at several places in the Gospels wherein Jesus tells us precisely why he came. There are several different reasons. Uh, there are multiple reasons, and we want to take just a few of them um, during our, our time in, in Advent and just explore what they mean and why they're significant for our lives today. So if you want to stand with me for the reading of God's Holy Word as we look at one of the reasons that Jesus came, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Let's listen with reverence and joy to the words of our God and our King. The Lord Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this time together. We thank you um, for telling us why Jesus came so that we might be saved, so that we might be made new, so that we might be renewed and given a renewed nature to seek after you, to know you, to trust you, and to grow in obedience to you. We pray that as we explore Matthew 5, 17 through 20 here this morning, that your word going into our hearts would result in that very thing. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why did you come into it all, into this broken world? Why did you come, not as a flame, as bright as the sun, not as the king coming to reign? Why did you come? You didn't need for anything. You were complete, perfect in joy, perfect in peace. Why did you leave heaven above, into our death, into our grief? Why did you leave? Why did you love? Why did you come? This season, we're remembering that Jesus has come and will come again. That's what the word Advent means. But as we mentioned last week, we would do well to ask, why did Jesus come? We don't want to just simply celebrate Advent and Christmas without asking what it is we're celebrating here. And of course, we're celebrating the arrival of the Lord Jesus. But why did he come? Why is his coming so significant? Why did he come in the first place? And again, we don't have to guess at this. Jesus, in several places throughout the Gospels, tells us why it is that he came. And we find one here, Matthew 5, 17 through 20, where Jesus tells us that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now, that's a curious statement to many of us, probably. It's a curious statement, one that deserves explanation. Why, why is that even good news for us? What, 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 what significance does that bring to us? What does it even mean when he says law and the prophets? What does it mean to fulfill them? 
And for many of us, it, it, it might seem really far removed from our, our daily lives, these sorts of questions. What, what, what do these things mean? Why do they matter to us? Well, if you're like most people in 2020, uh, this year has revealed the, just the depths of your brokenness and your failure, depths that you didn't even think was, was, were, were, were possible. It's entirely possible that this year you felt more, more divided, more scattered, more, more unfree than you've ever felt in your life. And if that's the case, you need to know what Jesus is talking about here. The big idea that we find here is that Jesus came to fulfill the whole Bible by giving us whole person righteousness. Jesus came to fulfill the whole Bible by giving us whole person righteousness. We're going to, do, uh, we're going to unpack that by looking at three points. Jesus came to bring whole Bible fulfillment. Second, Jesus came to teach whole Bible obedience. And third, Jesus came to give whole person righteousness. Now first, we see that Jesus, Jesus came to bring whole Bible fulfillment. He says in verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, right away, you hear the law and the prophets, you don't know what that means. And, and Jesus is speaking about here what we call the, the Old Testament, all of the books of the Bible before Matthew. The law is shorthand for the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then the prophets is shorthand for just the rest of the Old Testament. The Old Testament scriptures were written by these guys that God's people called the prophets. They were the ones through whom God delivered uh, his word. And uh, so by law and prophets, Jesus means the Old Testament. And he says, I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, this was a topic of controversy during Jesus's earthly ministry and later in the ministry of the apostles. The, the charge often leveled against Jesus and the apostles uh, in the church is that Christianity was a departure from God's word in the Old Testament. And so here, Jesus and Matthew, they want to emphasize that who Jesus is and what he came to do is in continuity with the story of the Old Testament. Jesus is not setting aside the Old Testament. He's not ignoring the Old Testament. He's not making the Old Testament invalid. He's not, it's not passing away. That won't happen, Jesus says, until the resurrection of the universe. He's not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And that's the operative word here, fulfill. Why has Jesus come? He's come to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. Now, what does that mean? The, the Greek word here is the word plerao. And uh, the word plerao could mean a few different things depending on, on context. Uh, for one, the word can sometimes mean to, to fill something up. Okay, so if you think about a balloon, when you buy a pack of balloons, they come empty and you have to fill them with air or with helium. And, and to fill them up with air or helium would be to plerao them. Okay, this month is our oldest child's birthday. And so we're going to get a big pack of pink balloons. And on December 29th, when that rolls around, we're going to plerao those balloons and we're going to scatter them all over our house. That's, that's what part of what the, play, the word plerao means. But then there's another sense that the word can kind of take on, another definition that actually I think is more appropriate here as we look at the context. And so the, 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 at other times, this word plerao can mean to complete. It means to bring something to its intended purpose. Okay, so in keeping with the balloon illustration, 
A balloon might be fulfilled in, in more than one sense. If you buy a balloon and it's not got air in it, it's basically worthless. It's not being used for what it was meant to be used for. Its purpose, its intended purpose, has not come to pass. And so when our oldest child's birthday comes, we're going to fill those balloons with air from our lungs, and their intended purpose will have come to pass. And it's in in that sense that they've been fulfilled. Well, that's what Jesus has, has come to do, he says, with the law and the prophets. He's come to bring about their intended purpose, to accomplish the purpose for which they were given. And of course, that just begs the question then, how does Jesus bring about the completion of the intended purpose of the Old Testament? Well, again, there's a few ways in which that's true. One way that Matthew's gospel continually says that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, is uh, Matthew continually shows that Jesus has fulfilled the predictive prophecies of of the Old Testament. Uh, this is one way that Jesus fulfills the, the law and the prophets. He fulfills their predictive prophecies. Matthew, again and again in his gospel, look at the life and teaching and work of Jesus, and he'll say, this was to fulfill, play ra'o, the word of the prophet so-and-so. And so in Matthew one twenty-two, Matthew looks at the story of the Virgin Mary becoming pregnant with Jesus, and he quotes Isaiah 7.14, saying, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel. In Matthew 2, Matthew looks at Jesus escaping to Egypt from the death ordered by the genocidal maniac, King Herod. And and when Jesus moves back to Israel from Egypt, Matthew quotes Hosea 11.1, and he says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken of by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Jesus begins his earthly ministry in Matthew 4.14, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, Matthew quotes Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, that great Christmas and Advent text. He says that this happened so that what was spoken about the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And of course, it's not just those texts. There's, there's so much foretelling of the person and work of Jesus in the Old Testament. And this is one of the great evidences for the truthfulness and validity of the scriptures for us today. Over 2,000 prophecies and foreshadowings from the Old Testament have been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. The law and the prophets foretell what family Jesus would be born into, what the place of his birth would be. They tell of specific details of his death on the cross and so much more. Every prophecy and foreshadowing from Genesis 3.15, where we hear about the snake crusher who will come to deliver us from Satan, sin, and death, all the way to the last prophecy of Malachi, the son of righteousness, who will come with healing in his wings, Jesus fulfills. He fulfills the predictive prophecies of the Old Testament. But then if we look at, at the context of these verses, it seems that Jesus might mean something more than that. It might mean something more than that. He's speaking not particularly of, of fulfilling the, the predictive prophecies, which is true, as much as he's talking about fulfilling the righteous demands of the law and the prophets. If you look at the law and the prophets, and then there's a great deal of moral instruction laid upon God's people. Indeed, indeed, God gave his people his command so that they would be faithful representatives of him. That the law was given, we find in Exodus 19.6, so that God's people would be 
a kingdom of priests. And what that means is that God gave the law so that his people would faithfully represent him and image him and be like him, like little mirrors that reflect his goodness. My family is largely Appalachian. And the way that many of my relatives uh, probably would probably put it is to say that God gave his people his law so that they would be a spitting image of him, right? Whenever someone's child or grand, grand, grandchild looks a lot like them, we would, we would say, well, isn't he just a spitting image of his papa? That's a spitting image. That's, that's my kids are a spitting image of me, right? That's why, that's why God gave his people his law, so that they would be like him, so that they would be a spitting image of their heavenly father. That's why God gave his commandments. And yet, if you read the Old Testament, as we did last year, as we looked at the book of Amos, right, you'll see that God's people failed to keep God's commands. They failed to be his representatives. They failed to be a spitting image of their God. And yet Christ did not fail. He kept the law of God because the law of God was written not only on the scrolls that he gave his life to reading and understanding, but as Hebrews 10, 7 says about Jesus, the law of God was written upon his heart. Jesus said it was his food and drink to do the will of his Father, i.e. to obey his commands. As the obedient servant of God, Jesus didn't receive the reward that he deserved as the one righteous, true, and just man. Instead, he went to his death on the cross, not because he deserved it. Indeed, he was the only one who didn't deserve it. He went to the cross because we deserved it. And so he went to the cross and he he suffered there and died so that our sin might be credited to him there. And in exchange, also that we would be forgiven and freely and fully accepted by God forever, uh, for, by the God against whom we've sinned. And in so doing, he's fulfilled the righteous demands of the law and the prophets. But then the, the, the fulfillment spoken of here goes even beyond that. You see, Jesus came not only to obey the law and pay for our sins as those who haven't, he came to rise again on the third day to bring about a new era, a new age, an age in which God's grace and power would break in and transform our hearts, the hearts of God's people. An age in which God's people themselves would be filled with the Spirit of Christ and experience a new birth so that Jesus would not be the only one with God's law written upon his heart, but so that God's law would be written on the hearts of each and every single believer. That's you, and that's me. He came to fulfill the righteous demands of the law, not just in himself, but through him in us, so that we would be given a new birth and a new nature, so that we would be more like Jesus. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 3 to 4 says this very thing when he writes this, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son and the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled, plerao, in us who live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I think this is actually the main thrust of what Jesus is getting at here. The main thrust of what he's saying is that he has come to usher in a new covenant and a new covenant in which God's law would be written on the new hearts of God's people. And God promised to do precisely this in the law and the prophets. One place he promises this is in Jeremiah 31, 33. There the Lord promises to his people, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it 
on their hearts. In other words, this whole Bible fulfillment that Christ is bringing is meant to produce a people in which there's whole Bible obedience. And that's what Jesus goes on to teach in verse 19 here. We come to, to, to see him teach whole Bible obedience. He says in verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You see, this gracious new covenant that God is bringing in Christ is not one in which God's people will be more lax about holiness and more casual about obedience. No, the new covenant that Christ is bringing is forming a people who are serious about God's commands and about obedience because they want to honor the God who saved them and because these laws, these commands are not just written on the pages of our Bibles, but they're written on our hearts, which means that we have this new and supernatural desire to love God and obey his commands. Not an effort to earn his favor. That's already freely and fully given in Christ. Christians are freely and fully accepted in Christ. We don't need to obey in order to belong. Instead, we obey because we belong. And this is far different from the ways of of legalism in the way of license, isn't it? Legalism, the legalism, this pharisaicalism, legalism says that we must obey in order to belong. License says that we belong, but there's no need to obey. Both fail to comprehend Jesus and what he came to do. He came to create and form a people who love him and love one another so that they might be a spitting image of him on the earth. Legalism seeks to obey but fails to love. License consumes and uses but also fails to love. But the gospel brings a new birth which results in a new nature. And this new birth and this new nature leads to a joyful obedience to the Bible's commands. Not perfectly, but characteristically and progressively. And we should think carefully about this because because a lot of different people approach the commands of the law and the prophets in a lot of different ways ways. And, and often what's popularly read and believed by, by many Christians is it's just not biblical. It's not biblical. It's not in accordance with what Jesus is saying here. Sometimes you might hear well-known preachers and teachers and well-meaning pastors say things like, we just need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. We don't need all those commands, all those stories and, and laws. They just compromise our witness in this time and place. So let's just leave it behind. Well, Jesus is saying something entirely different here. And if we're followers of Jesus, we need to go with what he says about the Old Testament, not with what anyone else says about the Old Testament. You know, I, I remember a while back, some of you have been around since uh, the beginning of Veritas. You might remember when we went through a series on the Ten Commandments. We just took each and every single commandment one by one. And at one point in time, uh, when we were in that series, I was talking with, a, I was talking with a, a pastor friend of mine about the series, and he started asking questions about, how I was going about teaching the Ten Commandments and, and how they apply to believers today and how we ought to obey and apply them on this side of the coming of Jesus. And, and he responded by, by telling me uh, that he believed the Ten Commandments had little to nothing to say to believers in Jesus Christ today. And, and so I asked him, well, how would you preach a sermon on the Ten Commandments? And he said, I probably wouldn't. And you know, that's not an uncommon mindset amongst many Christians in the United States. There's this thing called dispensationalism, and kids, you need to stay away from dispensationalism. It's very bad. I'm just kidding, sort of. Um, when may, but when many come to the Old Testament, uh, they, they fail to see its, its relevance and claim on their lives as, as Christians. 
Yet the, the Apostle Paul says that all scriptures, all the scriptures lay authoritative claim on our lives. He says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That's not just the New Testament. And it's not just the parts of the Bible that we find more palliative. All of the Bible is authoritative for us. And so we cannot, we must not as Christians set aside or relax any of the commandments of God. But then that brings up a really good question. What commands in the Old Testament then are we supposed to directly adhere to and apply to our lives? And what are we not supposed to directly adhere to and apply to our lives today? I, I ate bacon this last week. I, most weeks I ate bacon. Most, most ate bacon. Bacon is wonderful. Sh- should I be penalized for that? I mean, there are Old Testament laws forbidding the consumption of pork. When you walked in this morning, I didn't see anyone bringing animals for sacrifices in here. We don't even have an altar for such a thing. Should we start doing that? Because we can find prescriptions in the Old Testament for such a thing. Well, what we need to recognize here is, is that while we honor all Scripture and believe that all Scripture lays claim to all our lives, we need to remember and recognize that we don't apply and adhere to all Scripture in the same way. Christ didn't come to abolish the law, so there's a continuity with the Old Testament Scriptures in the New Covenant, yet in coming to fulfill, there's also a degree of discontinuity with the Old Testament Scriptures. And so while we never want to set aside the Old Testament We also don't want to compromise the newness of the new covenant and the temporary uh, measures in the Old Testament. There were some temporary measures in the Old Testament that were only for a time. And when the newness of the new covenant came, they were set aside. There are things in the Old Testament that we not only don't have to directly apply today, but things that we should not directly apply today. For example, there's the so-called ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. If you look at the Old Testament ceremonial commands, there were laws for how to worship and how to gather as God's people at the temple and offer sacrifices and whatnot. There were laws for priests and what kind of clothing they should wear and how the sacrifice should go and and all the rest of it. Well, in the new covenant, Jesus is our priest in our temple and our sacrifice. Those, Those commands were merely shadows pointing to the substance, pointing us to the substance, Christ. And we no longer observe such acts of worship. Instead, we glory in what those laws pointed to, namely the substance, Christ. I love the way this, this English pastor, Dick Lucas, illustrates this within a, an imaginary conversation between a, a first century Christian and their religious neighbor. Uh, the religious neighbor comes over to the Christian and they meet and, and the neighbor starts asking questions and he says, uh, oh, I, I hear you're religious. That's, that's great. Religion is a good thing. Uh, where's your temple? Where's your holy place? Christian says, we don't have a temple. Jesus is our temple. No temple, he says. Well, where do your priests work and and do their rituals? So the Christian says, we don't have priests to mediate the presence of God for us. Jesus is our priest. No priests, but where do you offer your sacrifices to acquire the favor of your God? He says, we don't need a sacrifice. Jesus is our sacrifice. And finally, the Christian just frustration sputters out. What kind of religion is this? You see, this is one sense in which we see Jesus fulfill the Old Testament. He came to be our temple, the place in which we meet with the presence of the living God. He came to be our priest so that we would be reconciled to and have access to the presence of the living God apart from any merely human mediator. 
Since we, in our sin, have earned nothing but the displeasure and condemnation of God, Jesus is our sacrifice to obtain the favor of God for us. You see, Christ, in fulfilling these Old Testament demands, there's a degree of discontinuity concerning them. We, we, we no longer directly apply them, but we look to them as, as pointing to the glory of what Christ has done for us. They were shadows, but he's the substance. But then some of the laws were, were moral. Some of the laws were moral, weren't they? And we must be abundantly clear when it comes to the moral commands of the Old Testament that those are still directly binding on our lives as followers of Jesus today. This is what Jesus is talking about when he tells us not to relax the least of these commandments or teach others to do the same. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. You shall have no other gods before me. These and more are most certainly to be literally and directly applied to the life of the believing community today. In fact, Jesus actually goes on to repeat and teach some of these very commands in the verses following our text this morning. However, to say that these commands are to be literally and directly applied still in the new covenant is not to say that nothing has changed regarding them. Even with the moral commands of the Old Testament, we need to understand how they change for us in light of the newness of the new covenant, in the light of the coming of Jesus, in light of this Christ fulfillment. Again, in the new covenant, these commands are not only written on the pages of our Bibles, but they're written on our hearts as God's people. Christ has come to do just that. In other words, he came to give us whole person righteousness. This is our last point. We look here in verse 20. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that would have been a shocking statement for first century Israelites. I mean, at, at this point in history, we're, we're pretty used to seeing Pharisees as the bad guys, but in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were the good guys. They were the heroes. As Sally Lloyd-Jones put it in the Jesus story, well, they were the extra super-duper holy people. But you see, one of the things that Jesus makes abundantly clear in Matthew's gospel is that according to his definition of righteousness and goodness, the Pharisees don't cut the mustard. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is going to go on to call the Pharisees hypocrites. And one of the interesting things we see in, in Jesus' definition of a hypocrite here in, in Matthew is that it differs a little bit from how we define the word hypocrite usually. What we mean usually is, is that someone is inconsistent in terms of character. In one setting, they'll say or do one thing. In another setting, they'll say or do something else. And that's a form of hypocrisy, but Jesus means something else here. That's not all that Jesus means. A better definition of hypocrite here in Matthew's gospel is someone whose actions and deeds are righteous, even consistently so. Yet the thoughts and intentions and motivations of their hearts are off. We, we see this explicitly in, in Jesus' teaching later on in Matthew 23. In verse 5 of Matthew 23, Jesus will say about the Pharisees that they do all their deeds to be seen by others. Are they doing good things? Yeah, but their motivations are off. He'll say in Matthew 23, 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. 
So you also appear outwardly righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They look righteous, they look good on the outside, but inside they're corrupt and filthy. In chapter 5 of Matthew here, Jesus will go on to speak much in the same way about observing the laws and commandments of the Old Testament. So he just said, whoever relaxes the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Well, Jesus doesn't relax them. Instead, he teaches them, and he teaches them as they, as they were meant to be taught, and he lived them as they were meant to be lived. Here's a couple of examples from the, the Ten Commandments. Jesus takes the Sixth Commandment. He says, you shall not murder. He teaches that commandment, though, in the way that it was meant to be taught, not just as as a way to be externally conformed to or externally observed, but it has real internal claims and implications for our hearts. He says in Matthew 5, 21, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. In other words, to really obey the command to not murder requires that you speak to your neighbor, not speak to your neighbor in in hateful and cruel ways. And what's more is is it not only lays claim to your speech, but if you possess hatred in your heart towards your brother, he says, if you hate another person, there is murder already present in your heart, regardless of whether or not you act on it. And therefore, you cannot be said to be righteous and good according to Jesus. He says much the same in the seventh commandment. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, you you don't commit adultery? That's good. But the command was meant to go far deeper than whether or not you actually do the deed. It lays claim on the thoughts and intentions of your heart. If you sexually lust after someone, the root of adultery is present within. Adultery is already present within your heart regardless of whether or not you act on it. And so you cannot be said to be righteous and good if that's the case. You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying the the, the greater righteousness... The exceeding righteousness he's calling us to here is a righteousness that is supposed to go down to the very core of who we are to our hearts. It's a righteousness of the heart. John Stott perhaps put it best when he said this, Christian righteousness far surpasses Pharisaic righteousness in kind rather than degree. It is not so much, shall we say, that Christians succeed in keeping some 240 commandments when the best Pharisee Pharisees may only have scored 230. No, Christian righteousness is greater than Pharisaic righteousness because it is deeper being a righteousness of the heart. Okay, granted, this can all seem a little complicated. So how do do we kind of boil this down to what it basically means for us here today? How do we sort of boil this down? Two things, Jonathan Pennington helped me with this, is two things. It's a piece of bad news and a piece of good news. I have a piece of bad news for you and a piece of good news. First, the bad news. Here it is. God sees and cares about your heart. He's not a God who's, unwilling, who's, who's willing to look past your unrighteousness even if it remains beneath the surface and hidden from the side of your neighbor. Even if it remains hidden from you. 
You might be able to fool others. You might be able to fool your coworkers, your family, your friends, your, your, your fellow church members. You might even be able to fool yourself. But God is not fooled. It's good that you don't murder people or commit adultery, but God sees the thoughts, intentions, and motivations of your heart. You're not fooling him. He sees it all. And some of you think that, that if only you don't do bad things, that you're a good person and God will accept you. And some of you think that even if you do bad things, well, you know, you're, you're well-meaning, your heart's always in the right place, you're a good person on the inside, and that's what counts. But God sees your heart, and he's not fooled. To put this in perspective for you, consider this. What if we were to develop some, some sort of piece of technology that recorded all of the thoughts and desires and feelings inside you? And we followed you around during this, this last week and we recorded it all and we got video and, and audio of each and every thought and each and every feeling and each and every desire. And this morning we were going to put it on the screen and we were going to play it for everyone to see. I don't know about you, that would be horrifying for me. I would be so ashamed and embarrassed for all of you to know everything that I've thought and felt and desired this last week. But here's the thing. The perfectly righteous, holy, and just God doesn't need that piece of technology. He already sees and he's unwilling to overlook the unrighteousness and sin in your heart. He's not a senile old grandfather who winks at sin. He hates it, and he sees it in your heart. And you might say, hold on, God saw all of my thoughts and feelings and desires from this last week? That's horrifying. He saw the hatred and the lust and the bitterness and the resentment. That is horrifying. And you're right, it is. It's terrifying. That's the bad news. God sees and cares about your heart. Here's the good news, though. God sees and cares about your heart. Think about who it is that's teaching us here about whole person righteousness. It's Jesus. It's the Son of God who left the pleasures and perfections of heaven to come down and experience the pains and perils of life in this world. This is the one who gave us that gracious invitation that we read earlier. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the one who, because he loved you, had his beard ripped out of his face and his back filleted with a whip and a crown of thorns pressed into his skull. This is the one whose body was broken and whose blood was shed. This is the one who was crucified and killed, and he did that already knowing about all of your sin, past, present, and future, visible and visible. Also, that your guilt will be taken away and your sin atoned for. And after all that, do you really think that he'd be looking for a way out of this relationship now? No! He's as committed to you now as he was the moment he bled for you, Christian. And, he's, and because he's just as committed to you now as he was then, my friends, let me tell you, he's not just interested in taking away your guilt and its eternal consequences. 
He's not just interested in giving you pardon from unrighteousness. He's interested in giving you power for righteousness. He doesn't just want to give you the full remission of sins. He wants to do that, but he wants to do more. He wants to fully restore you to be a spitting image of him. He wants to give you whole person righteousness. He wants to give you a righteousness that doesn't just settle for outward conformity to superficial moral standards. He's contending for the renovation of your heart down to the very core of who you are. Just as when a, a, a loved one and you love, they engage in destructive behavior. You, you want to forgive them, yes. But you want more than that. You also want them to be free from the destructive behavior because you truly want what's best for them. Well, in the same way, the Lord wants what's best for you. He wants to and has taken away your guilt and your sin and its consequences, but He wants more. He wants to take away the, the destructiveness of sin itself in your life, and eventually he will do it in full. But even here and now, he wants to do it slowly and progressively in your life. Why is Jesus saying all this? Why is he bringing the law of God to bear upon our hearts in such a piercing and potent way? Why would he do this? Well, in my experience, it's, it's because of our incessant tendency to make our lives a matter of checklists, in superficial rules, in managing circumstances, rather than actually doing the hard work of looking at our hearts and considering our hearts. We so easily and so naturally want to create little defenses and distractions that keep us from considering our hearts. This is especially true in this cultural moment of social media and image upkeep and busyness and endless mind-numbing heart-ignoring entertainment options. So often we just ignore the thoughts, intentions, and motivations of our hearts by distracting ourselves, by looking at social media, playing games, YouTube, putting in extra hours at work. Or sometimes, perhaps like the Pharisees, we can ignore our, our hearts by being obsessed with and nitpicky about following rules and, 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 and upholding doctrinal standards, which are good things, but sometimes we even try to use God's law and God's word to distract us from considering our hearts. There's a religious way of running away from God, and we're often guilty of it. We're often guilty of it. Or sometimes we blame the circumstances of our lives as the reason for why we're struggling in the ways that we are. We think that our year, with all of its difficulties, is to blame for why our lives are the way that they are. Or we think that if, if only our spouse or our job or our kids or the place that we live or our church or our singleness or whatever could change, then things would finally fall into place for us and we could get into the place in life that we finally want to be. As a dear sister quoted to me this last week, Elizabeth Elliot once said, the secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. You see, the dumpster fire of, of 2020, with all of its difficulties and disappointments, is not your biggest issue. Your biggest issue is that your heart is sinful and in need of the transforming power of Jesus Christ. 2020 was just the occasion that revealed that reality. So often, instead of dealing with the reality of our hearts, we create little defenses, little defense mechanisms, distractions, so that we don't have to consider our hearts. But my friends, it's our hearts that are the problem in our lives, and it's our hearts that God is ultimately after. And the good news is that God already sees and cares about your heart, and he's not going anywhere. 
He's inviting you to give it over to him so that he might make you whole. Friends, that's why he came. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets in himself and through him in you. To fully redeem you and fully restore you, not just outwardly but inwardly, so that you would be careful to obey his command, so that you would be a spitten image of him, so that you would be a people of deeper, whole person righteousness. That's why he came. That's why we're celebrating Advent. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the work of Christ in coming to redeem us, forgive us, and not just forgive us, but free us from the power of sin. And we pray that we would continually work and work and work to give our hearts to him over and over, to strive to enter into the rest that he gives us. To not rest until we rest in him. And help us to, to, to obey him, to obey your word, to obey your laws, not just from a place of external conformity to superficial moral standards, but to obey you from the heart, being a, peop- a people of deeper, whole person righteousness, not blaming our, our circumstances, not distracting ourselves with with superficial moral standards, not distracting ourselves with busyness and and social media and all the rest, but looking to Christ continually and receiving him with empty hands, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.